Welcome to the Girls Get Real Show with your hosts, Robin Lim and Rosalind Tang. In this podcast, we get real with you on personal growth, wellness, and dating, all while we navigate life through the unique lens of women in Asia. Tune in for unfiltered thoughts, honest opinions, and loads of real talk. Hey, it's your girl Robin. I'd just like to jump in to quickly apologize for the sound quality of this episode. We did face a little bit of technical difficulties while recording. And at the same time, we would like to give a big shout out to our friend Agrim, who has helped us with some post-production editing. And he's the only reason why we're able to put this episode out for you guys. We learned so much from our conversation with Charmaine, and we hope that you guys will still be able to enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Hey guys, welcome back to the Girls Get Real show with your hosts Robin Lim and Rosalind Tang. I know it has been a couple of weeks since we put out an episode. We have been working super hard on the back end to make sure we put out really good quality content and have interesting guests on this podcast. We have also been loving all the feedback and questions you have been sending us via Instagram. And if you have any guests you would like to hear from or topics you would like to discuss, please send them our way. You know where to find us on Instagram at Girls Get Real Show. In today's episode, we have guest Shamin Poe. She is an artist and photographer who works across photography, film, and performance to create spaces for narratives that are often unseen and unheard. She has exhibited her work internationally at the Singapore International Photography Festival, the Taipei Arts Festival, the International Center of Photography, and has published in the New York Times, CNN Style, and the list goes on. In 2019, she was recognized as one of Forbes Asia 30 Under 30 in the category of the arts. Welcome, Charmaine, to the Girls Get Real show, and I want to dive right into it. So tell us, who are you? Being an artist in Singapore is hard, and it is also a privilege. Yes, there are huge struggles if you want to do the kind of work that you want to do, but because it's also about freedom a lot of the time, it really is a privilege to try and conceptualize and execute something and have people listen. That's amazing that people will want to listen and that can be someone's job. So I think for me, sometimes I look at the last five years um, and I, I feel very lucky. I cannot believe that it's my life. And sometimes when, when certain things that look like milestones happen, it weirdly enough just kind of goes over my head. And I kind of like don't think about it too much because it just doesn't feel very real or I don't really know how to process it. Um, so it's always interesting to hear it from someone else's point of view. But overall, I feel very, very privileged to be in this position. How did you end up as an artist and why did you choose storytelling as a career? So when I was in college, uh, I was studying for a degree in international relations and I uh, found a class on documentary storytelling. I didn't really know how to use the camera. I thought it was interesting, but I just took the class and was open to seeing where I was going to go. And in that class, we used photography, videography, and text 
to tell nonfiction stories about the society that we lived in. So we were just beginning to understand what it meant to be reporting or doing long-form storytelling. And the love of it grew to me. I think it was a way to be very much on the ground and at the same time express something that's so much larger than what is immediate in front of you. It was a way to talk about larger themes and topics and present it to a wider audience. So to me, it really bridged that gap uh, where policy and um, certain other types of related work didn't. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because these are challenging topics. It's hard for many people to vocalize their internal worlds. Like many times we don't have the vocabulary for feelings. Uh, many people are not even like introspective enough. It's hard to be introspective enough to um, vocalize your thoughts on, you know, how you're performing gender, how you're performing various roles, like as a woman, as a girl in society. And I saw that's quite a recurring theme in your work. Personally, between Robin and I in 2014, we started a project called Project Meet Real. Um, we both struggled with eating disorders and we started putting out written content. So we were interviewing people um, to share their eating disorder journeys. We were very public with our own as well. And um, we just wanted to start a conversation through writing as a medium. And I think it's um, interesting to choose different mediums, like photography as a medium, uh, film as a medium is, is very fascinating because it can you know, take a visual spin on anyone's stories and start really important conversations for topics that are pushed under the carpet. Project Made Real actually started very innocently when Roz and I discovered that we both suffered from various degrees of eating disorders and destructive body image issues. We wanted to come together to create the type of content we thought was missing from the media and be the support for others who were going through a similar thing. We ended up building a community through our content and events around body positivity, balanced eating, and wellness. So where both of you now in relation to thinking about those issues, have, have your views changed and matured? When I was about, I think the onset for me that I was anorexic, it started around when I was 14. So personally, like I was just super influenced by the media. We both went to the same girls' schools for 10 years. And there was just a lot of peer pressure to look a certain way. And the pressure hasn't diminished over time. It's more like, how do you build that internal strength and that self-awareness to resist that sort of pressure? So I struggled with um, anorexia and then bulimia for like two to three years. Um, it's hard to put a definite time to it because I was never physically at the state where I needed to be hospitalized. For me, it was almost purely a mental thing. There's some days I was counting calories. I was trying to aim for less than 500 calories, which is super unhealthy. I was exercising, doing lots of cardio on top of that. And I just had a lot of obsessive food thoughts. So I can empathize when someone has eating disorder struggles because I was in a very bad state, um, in a state where I was just so obsessive about my food. I, I ditched all my friends. I didn't have a social life for at least a year or two and then after that recovering from that and trying to remember what is a healthy eating cycle what are healthy eating habits was a real challenge like these things don't go away overnight you might be physically healthy but mentally just completely still um, in a different state of mind like very um, abnormal for me I think to some extent I have outgrown a lot of these um, insecurities and issues. I've spent a lot of time working on building that internal sense of security um, and balanced view towards my body image, my diet and exercise. But I would definitely be lying if I said that it 
wasn't still at the back of my mind whenever I have a lapse in terms of not exercising for longer periods of time or um, not controlling my diet for you know extended period of time, I do still feel this sense of guilt and negative motivation towards needing to exercise and needing to control my diet. So it's definitely a journey in terms of recovery and understanding myself. And ultimately, I think what matters is that we continue to work on ourselves and we continue to progress on this journey. And even if sometimes, you know, I do fall back and I do have these negative thought processes, um, it's okay. And it's really about how I handle them and deal with them instead of acting on them. On that note, I'm also very curious to understand what advocacy and activism means to you. For us, you know, that's what it meant. And we did spend a good amount of time being very public with our struggles and trying to open up these conversations, open up um, a lot of unknowns and have one-to-one conversations with women who had similar issues. I think advocacy and activism is another leap. I think my, my role um, is listening, observing, creating space and kind of presenting. It's still primarily a practice and art practice. I think um, activism is uh, a loaded and important word and way of being in the world where you really cannot have conflicting interests. Like you have to be very clear about what your purpose is and, and it kind of it encompasses like so many things from the start of publicizing an issue to the end of making sure change happens. And for me, I think maybe sometimes in some of my projects, you can see how it lies adjacent to activism and advocacy. And so I would say that is more of the position of my So I think my work, uh, I, 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 I treat my work as special and I protect it because there's so many stories. And I think it needs the constant and consistent activism of many people around in order for messages and ideas and perspectives to change. As a storyteller, how do you convey these stories without your own biases? I think it really depends on how you want to present the work. If you're working for a newspaper or a magazine, then obviously there are much stricter guidelines when it comes to that. No matter what, you are going to be biased because you are um, human. But I think it's more about creating um, a certain methodology where you prepare yourself to just listen and uh, decide when and how you're going to intervene if you do intervene and that you kind of build up a certain level of acknowledgement and trust between you and whoever that you're documenting. If you're immersing yourself fully in your subjects' experiences and you know, fully empathizing with them, how do you keep your emotional distance as an individual? At all times, you hold both roles. One is as a human being listening or as a friend, and another time as a cross person, to so someone who is thinking of the narrative, how to record it, um, how to make sense of it. And you have to just wear both hats at the same time. And I think there, there's a responsibility there because if 
you're not performing either of them well, it's not going to come off. Either people don't feel like you empathize and are properly listening, or the, the work sucks. <laughs> you know, so I think you just have to have that, that in mind. When and I suppose in order for you to be able to empathize and yet keep this emotional distance from your subjects, you need quite a strong internal balance and quite a strong internal sense of security and well-being. And so what does this mean to you and how do you achieve that? I think it's something that I only picked up a couple of years ago. I think my, my internal world, like as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, I was extremely chaotic. I think I, I really put in the effort over the last couple of years to make sure that my life outside of work is as reliable and stable as it can be. And that comes through going for therapy, going a walk and exercising, um, getting enough sleep, eating well, um, routines, basically small routines, journaling, even drinking tea. Like I think... All of these routines sometimes can feel so small, but they really add up. And I think having people around you who are interested in reciprocity and relationships of reciprocity, um, I think that really helps. Like having people who build you up and are willing to be there for you, they're really important. Friends are really important. I don't think people even emphasize this enough. I think for me, this is also a 2020 thing. I received feedback from one of my very close friends called Mira. Shout out if you're listening to this. Um, she shared that I actually spend way too much time focusing on uh, my romantic relationships. So I was in a long-term relationship for three and a half years. So I spent a lot of energy on that. I spent a lot of energy on my work life. So my professional life, my career at the expense of my female friendships, which are some of the strongest constants in my life. Like I've known her for like 12 years. I've known Mira for like eight years. And I have so many other friends in Singapore who are all stuck here and we're just spending so much quality time together. And I think that's incredibly precious. Uh, on the point about routines as well, I'm a huge believer in taking care of yourself. So whether that's making yourself a cup of tea, going for a workout that you really enjoy or taking a really long two hour bath, I think that really grounds me as well. That keeps me sane and helps me have a very stable internal life. Of course, it's challenging. Life constantly throws at you curveballs, but these grounding rituals definitely help. I actually want to dive a little bit deeper into some of the downsides or rather the unseen aspects of, you know, being the storyteller, being this, holding the space for other people. And do you have any stories or anecdotes of a situation where, you know, um, where your subject of photography, your subject of your art has actually impacted you in a way that you didn't expect to be? I can think of two things. One is that, there was someone that I entered a really into a relationship with. Uh, it wasn't. It was a personal project, so it wasn't like a, a commission or, or anything where I was clearly, you know, drawing all these boundaries. I didn't expect to get into that sort of situation, mm-hmm. and I think I I grew a lot through that situation, and eventually uh, came to the realization that that was not what I wanted, and uh, began to become quite strict about uh, how I navigate relationships and, and friendships when I am actually working, even though it can be really hard. 
And second, I think sometimes when I am very focused on these stories, I, I feel like I enter into a tunnel. I enter a tunnel and it seems like I don't uh, make room for anything else. So my my kind of capacity to hold emotion is taken up entirely by these stories such that I don't have the space to have another kind of social life because I will clear my entire day. I'll try to talk to as few people as possible, not because um, I just want to implement this, but because I, I really want to focus on being as present as possible. And uh, it really does feel like entering a world. Every time I become very devoted to a, a larger project, it really feels like I just entered this tunnel and I sort of disappear for a while. So I think um, learning how to manage that, <laughs> learning how to uh, come back to myself and make sure I don't get so lost that it is bad for me in some way. Yeah. So what is your process like, you know, in trying to photograph or capture a story that does that does not inherently belong to you? What is that process in putting yourself in, in, in immersing yourself in understanding and being able to capture the, the, the story in its fullness? I think it's really putting yourself in the situation. I think anything that's related to image making that has to do with nonfiction life is, is confrontational. And you have to be in that situation. You can't do it from afar. You can't like draw it out or go home and think about it. But you have to be in a situation. And so learning to actually exist and to hang out for a sustained period of time without feeling uncomfortable is something that is part of the job. It could be anything from being in a room where you don't know anyone and you just have to, even if you feel uncomfortable, you just have to force yourself to, to hang out and to just observe and see where it takes you. Or even sit with someone that you don't always agree with and try and not take it personally. Because sometimes, you know, you'll meet people and they'll say things and sometimes you don't like it. But I think you have to make an internal decision about whether or not to take offense in that moment. And decide, okay, actually, maybe this person may think these things, but I'm not going to take it personally. It's not about me. I think I'm trying, going to try and instead put my energy into understanding the situation. So that kind of like constant conversation that you have with yourself, I think that's really important to take. Anyone who makes documentaries or would be able to understand. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think people also probably don't recognize how challenging this is. Uh, most people are concerned with their personal relationships, their professional lives, and there's a lot of stake but there's also a lot of selflessness involved in representing marginalized communities or people whose stories are too difficult to convey through traditional mediums or, or through conversations. Uh, you mentioned something about criticism from the public and you having to be the face of some projects. What is your way of coping with criticism? I think a good way to cope is to look at that criticism and say, huh, you have a point and kind of try and work around it because there's no, there's no good that comes out of sparring with someone. And I think 
there's a lot of temptation to spa now, especially this year. But but I don't think that that's the way to go, and I'm not good at at, at that because I don't like it when I can't see a good conclusion. So I think criticism is there uh, to to try and make you better. Not not may not be the person's intention, but the fact that it is there can help you be better. And you can learn how to separate constructive criticism from not so constructive bits. And do you find a difference in responses when you see when you have an in-person gallery exhibition versus online where your works are also reflected in digital form? People are so much more willing to criticize online. Sure, they they can hide behind anonymity, and that's okay. I mean, I have come across different comments, and um, and it doesn't really bother me, I guess, as long as it is not founded on something that is truly dangerous, maybe to the people in my photograph or um, dangerous in terms of being so disingenuous that um, it could do real harm to me. Um, but otherwise, I try to just understand that that's the way the world is. Not everyone's going to like me. You cannot make everyone like you and you shouldn't. You talk about danger to the subjects of your in people in your photographs. And I was quite curious as well, like how do you get people to be so vulnerable in front of a camera and in front of somebody else, an outsider like yourself? Right? I think that is something that's quite special. I think vulnerability is something that we all struggle with from time to time. I mean, something with this podcast as well, that's what we're trying to do, right? To, to have these vulnerable conversations. So we're quite curious how you do it. I don't ask people to be vulnerable. I just, yeah, I, I don't think that's even something that I, necessarily go into the situation thinking because really it has to be a conversation and that person must be willing to go there and if they're not willing to go there then you just say like okay I'll stop here or you can share as much as you want to share when like I think it's important for people to know that there's a way out and if they don't want it to be published or they don't want it to be shared they can have the option and if you give people freedom I think then they they make choices uh, on that on that freedom, like you know, involves trust, certain openness. Yeah. Knowing that there is a way out, knowing that you have the option of not being vulnerable, that creates that psychological safety for people to be willing to, to open up to you. What is your concept of holding space, and how do you hold space for your participants? When I hold the space, like I. It's within the framework of a project. It's with the understanding that I want to discover this and understand this, uh, and therefore um, I want to create the space with you. I think sometimes in my in my daily life, I can be actually quite a lot more reserved and quiet, and sometimes just conserving energy <laughs> because of of work like that. Yeah, I think it's just more about giving yourself and, and the other person always a choice, whether you want to engage or not. 
So I think for 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 in our everyday lives, right, when with the people that we meet, with our own personal interactions and relationships, I think that's always something that we're striving towards as human beings, having that true connection, holding space for other people. And I think that's something that a lot of young people, especially when they struggle with, just because we're all so caught up in our own struggle and our own conflicts and our own worries and issues to be able to hold this space for someone else. And I just want to come back to something that you said earlier as well, that when you shed light on these stories through your work, people listen. What do you think draws people to your work? I think it's more of maybe they see something in the work that is a reflection of themselves. People always reach out to things or reach out to the world in order to understand understand themselves better. And I think maybe they see that kind of resonance through certain types of images or certain feelings that they can associate with their own life. So really, I think it's just a way to help them grow. Okay, so through listening to your work, also giving themselves, learning that for themselves the vocabulary of how to describe their own experience of reality and of life. I think it's something that is very much um, their own growth and to an extent their, their own projections. Mm. So what is next for you? Mm, I am trying to figure out the next couple of years of my work and life and in the midst of having to make some big decisions that I feel quite intimidated by and I am also recognizing that it is okay to feel all of that because it's been a really strange year and so I am trying to focus on small things, small immediate things in front of me by step. Um, my partner lives in Berlin <laughs> and I've been trying to find a way to move there and I think I just have to see how the next few months go because it's obviously really hard right now and also I think I have to really think about what kind of work I want to make next. What the, not just the next project, but the next few years. Like, what do I want the next few years to look like? Can the next 10 years look like the 10 years that just passed? I don't think so. So then how do I navigate this work so that I can get there, so it doesn't stay the same? What really satisfies me? Who do I want to collaborate with? I think these are questions that I have. Wow. Thank you for such a wonderful, insightful, and inspiring session. I think you have shared so many wonderful insights on your creative process, as well as your openness and patience in dealing with these more vulnerable communities. And we are super inspired by your work. Can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you or support the work that you do? You can find my work at shaminepo.com and on Instagram at psxshamin. And you can just email me if you have questions. <laughs> Want to say hi? Yeah.
So thank you so much, Charmaine. I really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks so much for sharing your story and even loaning us this beautiful studio for the recording. It's been amazing. And we can't wait to hear the listeners' feedback. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So this brings us to the end of the episode. We hope that you will enjoy it as much as we have in creating it. We cannot wait to put this out to the universe. And you know where to find us on Instagram at Girls Get Real Show. We cannot wait to hear your feedback, comments, and we will see you next time. Bye.